BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon-neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified vehicles slash beyond zero vision. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome to Part-Time Genius, the production of iHeartRadio. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, I know you love shopping malls, so I'm sure you've noticed <laughs> these people, but you know the people who like to exercise by walking back and forth through the mall? Sure, mall walkers. It's yeah. like half the country's grandparents. At least, and as you mentioned, it's especially popular with senior citizens, but they're actually not the only ones doing this. There was this 2015 report from the CDC that shows that shopping malls are now the second most popular place to go for a walk just behind neighborhoods. How weird is this? It's weird, but why is the CDC doing reports on mall walking? Well, this isn't a small report either. It's actually 56 pages long, and I'm reading every word of it. It's just (laughs) riveting. But to be fair, taking walks is a way to prevent certain diseases, and the CDC is actually the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. I bet you forgot that silent P at the end of the CDC. (laughs) Here's one funny thing that I learned. It actually turns out that most mall walkers don't actually shop at the mall. At most, they might buy a coffee at the food court or something like that. But according to the CDC report, they really just want the camaraderie, you know, to spend some time strolling and socializing. Mm -hmm. And that actually puts mall walkers right in line with the original idea for shopping malls. So the architect who designed the first mall in America, his name is Victor Gruen, He actually envisioned the mall as a place to, quote, find opportunities for social life and recreation in a protected pedestrian environment. Oh, that's interesting. So by that measure, despite not buying anything, mall walkers are really the only ones doing malls right. Yeah, I don't know about from the mall manager's perspective, but definitely from Gruen's. And he clearly had more in mind for shopping malls than what they would ultimately become. But what exactly did he envision? Why didn't it work out? And most importantly, is there still a chance that his high hopes for shopping malls could still be fulfilled? Those are just a few of the questions we'll try to answer today. So let's dive in.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hot Ticketer. And on the other side of that soundproof glass, just tucking into a feast of food court staples, <laughs> that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I got to be honest, I'm a little jealous of what I'm seeing over here. I know, Mrs. Fields, there's a cinnamon bun from Cinnabon, a pretzel from Auntie Anne's, and a huge orange Julius to wash it all oh, down. Man. It's like so a good. trip to the mall in food form, but from what it sounds like, that wasn't exactly Victor Gruen's vision of a mall. No, I don't think so. But to understand what his vision did entail, we should first talk about who Gruen was and where he came from. So he was born in 1903 in Vienna, Austria. He grew up in a middle-class Jewish family, fell in love with the city's thriving art scene, and this was at a pretty young age. So in the 1920s, he spent many of his evenings performing satirical theater at various cafes. And then during the day, he studied architecture. And this was at the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts. So it was actually the same school that had rejected Adolf Hitler just a few years earlier. Just a little fun fact to throw in there. <laughs> I feel like too good for Hitler should be on all their t-shirts. <laughs> well, unfortunately, though, the Academy wasn't the only point of overlap between Victor Gruen's life and Adolf Hitler. So when Nazi Germany annexed Austria back in 1938, Gruen knew it was time to leave his country behind. And weirdly, he left the same week as Sigmund Freud. I keep throwing in these little side facts about all these people. But <laughs> I like them. <laughs> I know. Well, leaving was easier said than done. So Gruen turned to one of his theater buddies for help with the escape. And it's actually kind of remarkable. His friend dressed up as a Nazi stormtrooper, escorted Gruen and his wife to the airport, and then made sure they were allowed to board a plane to Zurich. So from there, the couple made their way to England, where they found passage on this ocean liner and traveled over to New York City. So Gruen later looked back on this journey, and he said that he had arrived, quote, with an architect's degree, $8, and no English. Pretty tough. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredible story. So how did he make it work? Well, he once again turned to the art scene. He joins up with some other German immigrants, and together they form what they call the Refugee Artist Group, where Gruen did set design. So the group caught the attention of some big names in the music business. This included Al Jolson, Irving Berlin. Oh, wow. And they ended up helping them with their songs. And all of that help actually paid off. So the next summer, the group was able to stage an original Broadway show. And this actually ran for 11 weeks straight, which is just remarkable mm -hmm. to think about this guy arriving with $8. And however much longer later, the guy's putting on a Broadway show <laughs> that's running for 11 weeks. It's not bad. You know, so, so things were going well for Gruen. But his architecture career had, you know, suffered since coming to America then one afternoon in Midtown, Gruen bumped into an old friend of his from Vienna. It was this guy named Ludwig Lederer. So Ludwig wanted to open this leather goods store on Fifth Avenue, and he asked Gruen to help him design it. And so Gruen agreed, and what he ultimately came up with was something of a game changer for American store design. So rather than build the entrance flush you know, with the street like all the other shops in the area, Gruen actually made this recess, like arcade-style entryway with the tall glass cases on either side to sort of draw in the customers. So once they came inside, these guests were just dazzled by these faux marble floors, a green glass ceiling, a slew of bright spotlights that sort of reflected these display cases. And, you know, the result was a store that felt decidedly modern and unlike anything else on Fifth Avenue or, or really American retail in general. Hmm. So it, it's kind of hard to imagine now, but customers and critics ate up this new design. And as a result of this, Gruen was swamped with job offers. I mean, he was going to these 
upscale design stores all around the city and beyond getting these offers. So obviously designing these high-end boutiques and then going to big, boxy shopping malls seems like quite a leap and not exactly an upward one. Maybe so, but keep in mind that Gruen was commissioned to design the country's first indoor shopping mall in 1952, and it opened in 1956. So prior to that, malls as we know them really didn't exist. So there wasn't any stigma that we might associate with them today. So tell me about the revolutionary part about what Gruen came up with. Like, what was the shopping scene like in America pre-mall? Well, it was, you know, mainly mail order catalogs and department stores for the most part. Outdoor shopping centers started to catch on in the 1920s, but they were basically just strip malls as we think of them now, like a bunch of different stores stuck together and just happened to share a parking lot. So Gruen's big idea was to put all of these stores and walkways under one roof, and then you'd have the addition of central air and heating to make this complex sustainable year-round. And that last part was especially important, given the location of Gruen's first mall. This was the Southdale Shopping Center in Adena, Minnesota, just outside of Minneapolis. Where the winters are obviously frigid. Exactly. I don't think people would want to be walking around in those parking lots in the cold of winter. And so the project Gruen signed on for was meant to address the residents' demand for a temperate place to be able to shop. And one where they wouldn't have to brave the cold if they wanted to visit a different store after they'd gone to the first one. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So what about this bigger idea he had of a mall being kind of this social hub? Well, a lot of that was just in how he arranged the interior. So just as an example, most shopping centers of the era were on a single level. So, you know, you think about the number of stores in Southdale, it was actually meant to house 72 stores plus these two big anchor department stores. So making your way from one end to the other would have felt, you know, like forever just to get there. Mm -hmm. So instead, Gruen opted for this two-story design. They were linked by escalators, of course, and now we're all envisioning kind of the modern shopping center. So not only did this break up that monotony and make for a much easier trip back to the car, but it also ensured that people would circulate better, have more opportunities to socialize, But probably the most prominent example of his people-first design is what he put in the middle of it. It was kind of an indoor garden court, I guess they called it, complete with a skylight, a goldfish pond, towering live trees, balconies, hanging plants, like all of this other stuff, including a bustling cafe. There was even a 21-foot tall cage filled with brightly colored exotic birds And so it was basically Gruen's ode to the European piazzas that he had grown up with in Vienna. And he wanted to bring some of that old world European charm to the American shopping scene, which he kind of saw as characterized by urban sprawl and tacky design. So you fast forward a few years later, we're in 1960 at this point, and Gruen wrote a book in which he outlined his hope and belief that the malls could really be more like a town square and you know, Greek agoras of the past. Which is not exactly what we think of malls today, right? Definitely not. So when Southdale opened in October of 1956, it was met with this glowing praise from shoppers as well as journalists from every publication from Newsweek to the New York Times to Women's Wear Daily. (laughs) In fact, my favorite review, though, comes from Time, which heralded Gruen's Mall as, quote, the Pleasure Dome with parking. Of course, you know, all, it's, it's just, it's such a great quote. But with all that said, there was at least one person who absolutely detested the Southdale shopping mall. And that was none other than the legendary architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh-huh. So 
a month after the mall opened and, you know, it gotten all this national press, Wright made the pilgrimage to Minnesota to see it for himself. And he was not impressed at all. <laughs> so after his visit, Wright penned this scathing article for the Star Tribune writing, quote, what is this, a railroad station or a bus station? You've got a garden court that has all the evils of the village street and none of its charm. I love that the way he really criticized it was by calling it a railroad station. He really, really burned him with that. <laughs> so I'm guessing he was in the minority since, you know, every mall seems to have created most of its design from Gruen's. I mean, somebody must have liked these, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the design was such a success that it became really the de facto blueprint for indoor malls throughout the rest of the 20th century. And Gruen embraced all the love at first. And for about a decade after the Southdale Mall opened, he gave speeches, he wrote books about his creation, and really kind of pondered what he hoped it would do for American society. But sadly, though, Gruen's view of his work soured in the 1960s and in the 70s as more malls began to dominate the landscape. I mean, they popped up everywhere. And mm -hmm. worst of all, these copycat malls were built with tweaked designs aimed at maximizing profit rather than, you know, more fostering that sense of community. So he even started to see malls that he designed himself in a new light. So when he visited some later in life, he wrote of the, quote, severe emotional shock he'd experience and the ugliness and discomfort of the land-wasting parking lot that sprang up around these. So it definitely changed the way he thought about them. And so he was a bit disillusioned, and he decided to move home to Vienna. Hmm. But when he got there, he was actually heartbroken to discover that the new shopping mall had been built just south of the old Vienna, and that it was driving independent shops out of business. And as Malcolm Gladwell put it in a piece for The New Yorker, Quote, Victor Gruen invented the shopping mall in order to make America more like Vienna. He ended up making Vienna more like America. Oh, that's awful. But, you know, I, I'm a little confused. It, it sounds like Gruen really hated those giant mall parking lots. So were those something that was added later and, and not a part of his original design? Oh, the, yeah, that's actually pretty right. I mean, Gruen's mall designs included a much more modest parking lot than the endless stretches of asphalt that we're used to associating with malls today. And in fact, when Gruen first drew the plans for Southdale, he placed it in the center of this 463-acre plot. And to fill all that surrounding space, he drew up designs for apartment buildings and schools and a park and actually even a man-made lake. Hmm. But unfortunately, none of that ever came to pass. And instead, the space was used to make this massive parking lot. And of course, future malls followed suit, and very few of them ever adapted Gruen's multi-use approach to these developments. That, that is a shame. You know, the whole story kind of reminds me of what happened with the inventor of the TV, Philo Farnsworth. You know, he was another guy who saw his invention grow up in a way he wasn't expecting and grew to kind of hate it over time. Yeah. It is weird to kind of resent the thing that's held up as the biggest achievement of your life, right, for both these guys. Yeah. And in Gruen's case, he actually took his distaste even further than Farnsworth by completely disowning his creation. So two years before his death, which was in 1980, Gruen gave a speech in London and he washed his hands of malls entirely. Here's what he told the crowd. I'm often called the father of the shopping mall. I would like to take this opportunity to disclaim paternity once and for all. I refuse to pay alimony to those bastard developments. <laughs> they destroyed our city. 
Okay, well, and now that we've unspooled the long and sad history behind the birth of shopping malls, what do you say we step inside of one and take a closer look at some of the -the behind-the-scenes tricks that developers use to keep the customer shopping? Sounds good, but before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms... And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about all the sort of devious design tricks that shopping malls use to empty our wallets. (laughs) But to be clear, none of the stuff we're about to talk about came from Victor Gruen. As you can probably guess by now, he was fundamentally opposed to any design choice aimed at manipulating customers into spending more money. I think he would have felt Like he was betraying that sense of community that he was hoping to instill in these malls. Yeah, but there's another dark layer to the story because despite his principled approach to design, Gruen still wound up having a shady mall tactic named after him. Uh, So you know how sometimes you get disoriented in a mall or a big store, like you're just walking Mm -hmm. through this giant maze and you kind of lose track of where you are in the building or how long you've been there. That's known as Gruen Transfer. And Gruen would have hated the name, but the effect is a real thing. And stores actually put a lot of effort and thought into how to best trigger this reaction in their customers. 
So Victor Gruen might have wanted malls that were easy to navigate, but future designers learned that confused shoppers actually spend more money. And that's why so many malls have these maze-like layouts with difficult-to-find exits. And while you're wandering around, other carefully designed, coordinated features kind of do their part to keep you feeling upbeat and engaged. You can think about things like Muzak that's relaxing and played through the pipe speakers or um, eye-catching entrance displays. And the more time you spend in this mall days, the more likely you are to make impulse buys, right? Like an article on New Scientist describes it as being, quote, confused into a state of unplanned consumption. I call this the Ikea effect, I think. But, uh, <laughs> and, and, and all this makes sense. And I get why they called it after Gruen, but, you know, because he helped build these malls. But actually, help me out with that last part, the, the word transfer. Yeah, so what's actually being transferred is the desire to have a specific item. So you go to the mall to buy a sweater, and it's only a sweater that you're looking for. But if the designers play their cards right, you'll be so dazzled by the time you get to the store that your desire for a sweater will already have been transferred to a bunch of different items that you never planned on buying. Oh, okay. That makes sense. But I mean, I'm still curious, if Gruen didn't come up with the different sales tricks that we find in malls now, then who is responsible for that? Like it was just mall architects who followed him or what? I mean, that's where some of the ideas came from and new methods were added over the years, certainly. But a lot of the common features in malls actually originated with one of Gruen's contemporaries, This fellow storefront designer, his name was A. Alfred Taubman, and he goes on to be a huge mall mogul. In the late 1950s, Taubman followed Gruen's lead by building his own indoor shopping mall in California. And over the next 50 years or so, he just kept on building. So he actually passes away in 2015 at the age of 91. But his company's still going strong with 24 malls spread across 11 different states plus Puerto Rico, South Korea, and China. And each of them incorporates special designs all developed by Taubman over the years. All right, so can, can you give me some examples of what these designs are? Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound a little hyperbolic, which I guess it kind of is, but a lot of Taubman's innovations were sort of like perversions of what Gruen had designed. So, you know, we talked about Gruen wanting this two-level mall. It was so that people could circulate easier and bump into more people. But Taubman kind of took that trick and moved the escalators to the ends of the buildings. So you wouldn't meet up in the center, but rather you'd have to make the full loop around the mall and buy more as a result. Got it. And Taubman's malls also applied the circulation theory to the exteriors. He was actually the first to put a circular road around a mall and add a bunch of extra entrances so that shoppers could easily get to any part of the building. Oh, that's interesting. And that bit about the moving of the escalators, I mean, it's such a good example of how a simple tweak can change the focus from, you know, customer comfort to some that really more benefits the sellers. And I'm curious, did you find any other cases like that? Yeah, so another good example is what Taubman did with the lighting. So he kept all the skylights from Gruen's design, but he made them recessed so the sunlight would never directly affect the storefronts. Mm -hmm. And he also added these tiny lights around the skylights so that when the sun started to go down, customers wouldn't take the shift in lighting as this cue that it was time to leave. And uh, speaking of visibility, Taubman insisted on using transparent handrails in his malls so that you could always see the stores around you, regardless mm-hmm. of what level you were at. I mean, apparently it was he was trying to battle something called threshold resistance, which I guess refers to both the physical and psychological barriers that might prevent a customer from entering a store. Like they could block your view and keep you from seeing a store in the upper level that you might otherwise go inside, I, I guess. Yeah, and, that, that's part of it. Well, I mean, speaking of psychology, we were talking about Muzak earlier, and I have to mention this weird fact I came across this week. So according to a 2011 report from Stanford, 
all the malls in America put together consume more than a gigawatt of electricity every month just from playing that awful background music that's supposed <laughs> to make you shop more. And when you do the math on this, that energy usage comes out to 3,000 metric tons of CO2 added to the atmosphere each year just from this stupid music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess not only is it annoying and manipulative, it's also contributing to climate change. <laughs> well, to be fair, human society emits around 30 gigatons of greenhouse gases per year. So it's not like 3,000 tons from a mall is doing that much damage, but... I just thought that stat was interesting. And, you know, of course, once you factor in all the energy that malls use to heat, cool, and light these massive interiors around the clock, their contribution actually starts to look a bit more significant when you put it in, you know, as a whole, I guess. Yeah, I'm sure. I, actually, Gabe was telling me about this one mall he visited in Kentucky where there were only like two or three actual stores in the entire complex still open. Like every other one had been shuttered. But the mm -hmm. AC, the lights, the escalators, the music, you know, all of that was still going on throughout the building. And that's actually not a one-off thing. There are hundreds of malls like that across the country. I feel like you see them on YouTube a lot, like uh, urban explorers will, will go and take videos of them. But a lot of these dead malls, as they're called, are actually just limping along kind of on life support like the one he saw in Kentucky. Yeah, I, I feel like we should probably talk a little bit about why that is and the state of malls, you know, today. But let's take one more quick break and then we'll get back to that. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. 
Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Okay, so it's been 63 years since the country got its first indoor shopping mall. And during that time, as many as 1,500 more malls have been built in the U.S., sometimes growing at more than twice the rate of the population. And you can tell by those numbers that America's malls have actually had a great run. But I want to ask, how are they holding up in the digital age? Like, do the next 60 years look as promising as the first? Oh, not even close. I mean, it's it's, it's, <laughs> kind it's of a not. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say thanks for that uh, tough question. I mean, those fifteen hundred malls you mentioned, we're now down to about eleven hundred. And you know, if you ask a lot of analysts, they project that hundreds more will close over the next decade alone. So, what do you think's behind that decline? Is it just you know something predictable like online shopping, or, or what is it? All right, well, maybe cover your ears because predictable or not, the rise of online shopping has definitely done some serious damage to the mall industry. And that said, the demise of brick-and-mortar retail has been greatly exaggerated, though, because according to The Atlantic, it's actually growing at a rate of 3% per year. And even e-commerce-based companies like Amazon and Apple, they've doubled down on the physical retail game, which is something they definitely wouldn't be doing if brick-and-mortar retail was truly on its way out. So why are malls closing then? Why is it so desperate? Well, to put it simply, our country devotes way, way too much space to retail stores. So 48 square feet per person, to be exact. That is twice as much retail space per capita than any other country in the world, and a lot more than that in some cases. Four times more than Japan and France, six times more than England, nine times more than Italy, 11 times more than Germany. I'm just going to keep going. I've got 57 (laughs) more of these. But a retail analyst told CNBC that America is, quote, the most overstored place in the world. And when you look at the numbers, it's hard to disagree with this. So uh, obviously this isn't a new development. We've been hearing about urban sprawl for years now. And it was a big part of why Gruen turned his back on malls entirely in the 70s. So why is the rug being pulled out now? Like, did it just take a while for the effects of all that retail expansion to manifest? Yeah, I mean, again, the arrival of online shopping was kind of the tipping point in in all of this. And being able to shop at home really shined a spotlight on just how out of control retail construction had grown. So suddenly you had all these empty stores, malls without customers. So we may have just started seeing the effects recently, but the so-called retail apocalypse has actually been a long time coming. I mean, the big question now is what to do with all the unneeded malls that we already have. And In most cases, tearing down a failed mall is considered too expensive to be a real option. But leaving them there to just decay, like that's not an appealing strategy either. Right. Well, it's not like all the remaining malls are going to close. From what I read this week, the 300 or so of the top earning malls, like they're going to be fine in the long term. And those are the fanciest top tier malls that sit in wealthy areas and still bring in a lot of money. But the other 800 or so lower tier malls, you know, you might have to get creative with, like if, if they want to avoid being those sort of YouTube spectacles that, that that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and you know, from what I've seen, that's exactly what a lot of them are doing. Some of them are just being straight up repurposed, either as apartment complexes, churches, or schools. I even read about one old mall that's been transformed into this enormous indoor paintball park, which actually <laughs> kind of sounds, sounds kind fun. Of amazing. <laughs> yeah, but plenty of other malls are being converted into what are called lifestyle centers. So that's kind of a more hip or more upscale take on a mall with 
Specialty stores like Crate and Barrel or Pottery Barn in place of the more traditional department store anchors like a Sears or a Macy's. So they also focus more on entertainment options than regular malls do. So in addition to stores and restaurants, you might find live music venues, a bowling alley, fine art galleries, sometimes a built-in movie theater. And a lot of these lifestyle centers are open air too with like these facades that make stores look like row houses so you get some of that main street feel to them. Yeah, I mean, I've been to a few of those before. There there was one being built in Durham years ago and I, I remember thinking like, you don't have to build a mall that looks like an old tobacco warehouse when you've got these old tobacco warehouses just right. around the corner. But exactly. <laughs> what I do like about this manufactured downtown feel is that it's kind of a throwback to what Victor Gruen wanted for malls in the 50s. Like he wanted to bring mm-hmm. a touch of culture and character to the suburbs by just giving people a nice place to gather and socialize and, of course, shop as well. Yeah, I think that's right. And actually in the book I quoted earlier, Gruen wrote that, quote, by affording opportunities for social life and recreation in a protected pedestrian environment, by incorporating civic and educational facilities, shopping centers can fill an existing void. And so while the classed-up look of a lifestyle center might seem like the first-time malls have come close to delivering on that promise, I'd actually argue that even the crassest, most commercial malls still did manage to fill an important void for a lot of people. So what do you mean by that? Well, think back to when malls were at their peak in the 1980s and even the early 90s. So back then, there was really some social benefit to going to the mall. You think about rural and suburban areas, there just weren't enough people to have the kind of daily interactions that you know are so commonplace in cities. So in that sense, malls were a way to get people into closer proximity to one another, really more prompted this meaningful chance encounters for people who might not have met otherwise. And, you know, aside from accessibility to humans, there's also accessibility to products that malls provided. If you think back in the dark days before the internet, just so scared even to think about, (laughs) you know, someone in a place like Minnesota, they would have very limited selection of clothing and books and music to choose from. And, and any kind of international products would have been next to impossible. But with these malls coming along, you know, suddenly products from all over the country and, all over the world, really, were available under one gigantic roof. Which is a good point. And and speaking of mall nostalgia and how different it is from a world where we're getting marketed to from our phones and our computers and just nonstop, I have a quote here that I wanted to share from an author named Ian Bogost. And and he wrote a great article for The Atlantic that kind of served as an elegy for shopping mall culture. And this is what he writes, quote, Americans' days of hating the mall are numbered. When it gets replaced by Apple Town Squares, Walmart Supercenters, and the online-offline slurry of an ever-rising Amazon, we will miss those zoos of capitalism, those prisons of commerce, where consumerism roared and swelled, but inevitably remained contained. I guess you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> well, we can't dwell on the past forever, so what do you say we head into the fact-off and share a few of the crazier mall stories we found this week? All right, let's do it. All right, I'll get us started. Let's see. Well, remember how I said that America has twice as much retail space per person compared to the rest of the world? Mm -hmm. Well, our record is even worse when it comes to parking spaces. In total, the United States has roughly 2 billion parking spots. 
and only about 250 million cars to park in them. So that evens out to eight parking spots for every car in the country. And one of the biggest contributors to this oversupply of parking is, of course, the giant parking lot that circles the thousand plus shopping malls that we have been talking about today. In fact, there are more than twelve and a half thousand at the Mall of America alone. Which is so weird. Anyway, there's one person who always comes out ahead at malls, no matter what the circumstance, and that is Santa Claus. So according to a magazine you might be familiar with, Mental Floss, uh, being a mall Santa is a salaried position and can net first-timers around $10,000 per six-week season. And if you're a Santa with a little bit more experience under your belt, you might actually be able to earn closer to $30,000 per season. Of course, any would-be Santas listening should keep in mind most malls typically require their Santas to have natural beards, so no falsies allowed. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right, well, here is a, kind of a weird one. So malls may be on the decline in the U.S., but the business is still booming in many Asian countries, particularly in China. The only problem is that a lot of the men there don't seem to enjoy shopping nearly as much as their wives do. So to get around this, some Chinese malls have begun offering complimentary lounges specifically for bored husbands who would have rather stayed home. <laughs> the name for these facilities literally translates to husband cloakroom, which I kind of love. But <laughs> it sounds like they offer way more amenities than the average coat check. I mean, this varies from mall to mall, but the lounges typically include, you know, these comforts like Wi-Fi, snacks, big TVs, and of course, comfortable chairs. I love that. And I love the idea of like a wife dropping off their husband and claiming a tag and then like maybe forgetting yeah. to come get him at the end of the day. Exactly. <laughs> so this is a pretty odd fact. Six malls in Southern California now feature funeral home kiosks where shoppers can pick out coffins or urns and plan their own funerals. Apparently, they even have a cremation urn with the LA Dodgers logo on it. So, nice. so far, the funeral industry seems to view this whole thing as a major win in terms of reaching the audience where they're at. There's this one director of International Cemetery Creation and Funeral Association who said, quote, nobody gets up on a Saturday morning and says, gee, it's a nice day. I wonder if I can go out and get myself a burial plot. But <laughs> if they're surrounded by happy, lively people and maybe clutching a bag of Mrs. Fields cookies, the thought is they'll feel differently. <laughs> I'm not sure that I agree with that, but it is pretty interesting. It and I guess great. there's a reason they're doing it. But all right, well, the risk of seeming obsessed here, I'm going to steer us back to the exciting world of mall parking lots. But for good reason here, because I want to share a tip that I came across for how to easily find an open space. According to mathematician Joe Pagano, all you need to do is find an aisle close to the mall entrance, get about 20 full spaces in your site, and then just stop and wait six minutes. <laughs> I love the idea of just stopping. Like, that's not yeah. going to upset anyone behind you. But why six minutes? Well, according to Joe, the average shopper spends 120 minutes in the mall. So if you divide 120 minutes by the 20 spaces you've zeroed in on, then you get six minutes. And that's how long it should take for a shopper to return to one of those spaces. So if you follow Joe's method, that should be the max amount of time you'll spend hunting for a spot. Well, I do like that one, and I'm going to have to try it out the next time I'm craving an orange, Julius. I, I, I think you end up with the trophy for this round. Nicely done. Well, thank you so much. All right, well, I think that does it for today's part-time genius from Gabe, Tristan, Mangesh, and me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Part-Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount.